So, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Um, my name is Jan Klein Heisterkamp, and I would like to welcome you on behalf of the LSE Law Department to this second LSE arbitration debate. As many of you will know, this is part of our transnational law project, which was set up about two years ago to federate our expertise in various aspects of the phenomenon of um, rulemaking beyond the state, or whatever else you want to choose as a definition for transnational law. And of course, arbitration is a key driver for this development. You may remember very exciting events, such as Jan Paulsen's inaugural lecture on the 24th of November 2010, as well as the first LSE arbitration lecture just a year later, um, between him and Alexis Moore on the controversial issue of unilaterally appointed arbitrators. Another highlight was the presentation and discussion of the LSE study for the European Parliament on the future of European investment policy last November. And in the same line, we have other very promising events coming up. We have next Monday government officials from Australia, South Africa, Ecuador, Norway and the US to discuss the rethinking of investment treaty law from a policy perspective, which is of great topical interest especially since Australia just recently announced that it would abandon investor-state arbitration in trade agreements. We also have coming up on the 17th of June our Transnational Law Project Conference, where we will have again some of our protagonists of tonight, as well as a number of LSE staff and special guests to discuss on the topic of private norms and private norms and public interests in transnational economic law. Today's event is yet another highlight. The second LSE arbitration debate is a joint event of the LSE Transnational Law Project and the Law and Financial Markets Project, which is headed by my colleague Roger McCormick. Today we explore yet another highly topical and controversial issue. To what degree is international arbitration suitable for resolving financial markets disputes? The idea of this debate came up when I met Jeffrey as our new visiting professor at LSE last year, and I, when I read his intriguing article, The Courts, the Financial Crisis, and Systemic Risk. So now here we have who the Financial Times has called Mr. Derivatives, the founder of Ellen Overy's US law practice and the former senior partner of its global derivatives groups the principal author of the ISTA Master Agreements and the driving force behind a very dynamic initiative to set up a world court for financial disputes in The Hague. On the other hand, we have Mr. Arbitration par excellence, Jan Poulsen, our current centennial professor at the LSE Law Department, who needs as little introduction in the arbitration world as Jeffrey in the financial law world. Jan co-hands Freshfields International Arbitration and Public International Law Practice Groups He's one of the most distinguished arbitrators and a passionate teacher and a great supporter of innovative and critical thinking. And it is my special privilege to welcome, as the moderator of this evening, Dr. Peter Werner, the Senior Director of ISTA in charge for matters of global and regional law reform. In other words, someone who has a keen interest in tonight's debate. I shall also say that the format chosen for the LSE arbitration debates of course imposes a certain polarity. Jeffrey is himself a most sought-after arbitrator and expert and knows all about his virtues, 
but shall, for the sake of debate and teasing out the critical issues, take the role of agent provocateur by highlighting concerns regarding arbitration's appropriateness for financial markets disputes. Jan shall then try to convince you, in his unique way, of exactly the opposite. Then, Peter Werner, tonight's moderator, shall give you a short, sorry, before entering into the debate, Peter Werner should give you, shall give you a little introduction into the topic of tonight's debate and tell you why it is followed so closely by those steering and innovating international financial markets. And finally, and this is the embarrassing part, an apology. Owing to unforeseen complicateds, we will have to end this debate without the promised drinks reception. I'm terribly sorry for this. Promising people drinks to lure them to an event and then not delivering upon that is an awful thing to do. I can only hope that the debate will compensate for this drought. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jan. Thanks uh, to the LSE uh, for the kind uh, invitation to today's um, event at the LSE. I'm very delighted to represent ISDA here um, this evening, which is, for me, it's the first time uh, to join one of your um, debates, and it's also um, a great privilege to join this august panel this um, afternoon, this evening, to discuss um, our topic, arbitration and financial market disputes. Um, in order to kick things off, I would like to give you a little bit of background on why um, ISDA is getting involved in this issue, and um, Jan has asked me to uh, and give a little bit uh, on background of background to um, the latest ongoings within ISDA. I understand prior to this uh, debate um, you have received the um, ISDA memo from January uh, uh, this year, 19th of January, on arbitration and derivatives. Just to set the scene a bit before we go into the subject matter, um, uh, what is ISDA first of all? Um, we are um, the uh, Global Trade Association that publishes the global standard contract for OTC derivatives transactions, which looks like this. Many of you may have seen this document. We estimate that across the globe around 90% of OTC transactions on a cross-border basis are documented under the ISDA agreement. And one of the co-authors, uh, if not the main co-author, uh, of the most recent version, the 2002 version, is sitting next to me. That's Jeff, of course. Um, the document is uh, governed by either New York or English law. Um, we do not have any particular surveys, but it, it's probably fair to say that most of the cross-border transactions globally are governed by English law uh, on a worldwide basis. Within the Americas, it's slightly different. New York law is a, is a very prominent one, um, choice of law there as well. You should know also that Section 13 uh, does not include a, uh, an arbitration clause at this point in, as part of the standard wording. Um, and that's part of the reason why um, ISDA's memo has been, has been prepared and also circulated. Uh, we'll get into that later on. Um, to explain the perspective on, uh, on arbitration that ISDA has, I'd like to make a couple of um, remarks as well. Um, it's fair to say that ISDA is a fairly new participant in the deba debate on arbitration. Until around two and two and a half years ago, we didn't really have a arbitration on our agenda. 
This is not um, because we didn't like a, um, the issue of arbitration. It's just because it never really came up. Which is probably quite surprising, but that's the way it is. <clears throat> so there's a uh, clearly neutral approach that we take towards arbitration. So we are uh, novices to this topic. So um, even more reason for us as ISTA to learn uh, what's being debated in arbitration circles. Of course, um, arbitration has been used in the context of ISDA transactions worldwide, um, mostly in the context of transactions with sovereigns, uh, with emerging market counterparties, and also with, uh, um, the context, within the context of commodities transactions. That's, so therefore, it's no surprise that over the last two, two to three years, there has been an, uh, a significant increase in interest um, in uh, arbitration and members and market participants have approached ISDA uh, over the last two years um, to do something on arbitration. <clears throat> um, what that might be, I'll, I'll let you know in a second or two. So therefore, we've engaged, uh, tried to engage with um, uh, the arbitration community, which is for us a new community. Um, we've also um, engaged with academics and arbitration fora over the last two and a half years, so I had the pleasure to meet a couple of very interesting people. The first result of that change in trend <coughs> is the inclusion of an arbitration clause in the Islamic version of the ISTA agreement, which was published in 2010. Um, there we have the, um, uh, an option between a normal jurisdiction clause and an arbitration clause. Um, all these developments and all these debates have then resulted in the um, document that has been circulated prior to this event, the January uh, 19 memo, um, which uh, uh, we can discuss later on as well. Um, the next steps will be that we'll follow up on this um, um, in light of the feedback that we've received from the market participants as well as uh, um, other interested parties. And maybe it might help uh, the purposes of today's debate a bit uh, for the benefit of the two um, debatants um, to know the current status of ISTA's work and what's come out of the most recent discussions. <clears throat> First of all, it goes without saying that there's a, a clear demand within the market um, towards ISTA to explore uh, arbitration further. Again, we are uh, absolutely neutral as to the choice of the arbitration forum quite interesting that uh, our office here in London has been besieged quite a bit for a couple of weeks by certain arbitration fora that would like us to hardwire their particular um, uh, forum into the ISDA documentation, but we don't see our role in promoting a particular arbitration forum. We would li rather like people, the counterparties, to make that choice. We only make a statement as to the forum to be chosen as a fallback. In the Islamic version of the ISTA agreement, section 13, there's a fallback um, um, choice in case the counterparties fail to make an express choice. should probably also say that it's fairly unusual in an ISTA context to uh, not make a choice of governing law or jurisdiction. Um, it's an express. Um, there's a couple of express jurisdictions there. So I guess in practice this actually never really happens, certainly not that often. Um, ISDA sees its role with regard to arbitration in providing uh, to its members and market participants enough background and feedback in order for the market participants themselves to make an informed decision. 
both options, jurisdiction clauses as well as arbitration, have their pros and cons, of course. Um, we would like to see the markets to um, get the derivatives markets, I should say, um, make a more informed decision. So far, as I said at the outset, there hasn't been much debate within derivatives transactions and the markets uh, about arbitration, the pros and cons. So, what are we going to do? Um, an easy fix would be to provide an arbitration clause as part of the ISDA standard wording and then include it in the ISDA master agreements. That's a little bit too easy, um, I would say. Uh, we've come to the tentative conclusion that we would like to uh, debate further a couple of um, questions that have been identified. First of all, first and foremost, are we certain that uh, derivatives are uh, suitable for the existing arbitration fora? That's one question. The second main question is, do we have enough qualified arbitrators? Or are derivatives so special that they need uh, special attention and specially qualified people? <clears throat> do we need special arbitration procedure rules for derivatives or can we use existing ones or modify them? Does ISDA as a trade association, global trade association, need to take uh, on a role in any of the derivatives disputes that arise? For example, a sort of a library of awards, an administration of a list of arbitrators, etc. Also, is there a need uh, and a um, desire to introduce expert witnesses, amicus briefs, expert opinions, etc., in local court proceedings everywhere across the globe? Because, as you are aware, we have quite a lot of litigation going on that involves derivatives and the ISTA master agreement across the globe. And uh, let's not fool ourselves the, uh, ourselves, the issues of and the problems around the alleged lack of expertise doesn't only affect arbitration fora, it affects equally courts. We've, we've learned that in the last couple of years um, quite um, often. So, um, and finally, the last point that we've identified is um, we have issues around, the, uh, around arbitration and, and mutual recognition of judgments um, in the context of the EU Brussels I regulation as well as the Hague Convention of Choice of Court Agreements. Um, are these issues easier or any harder than those um, that are facing the New York Convention and the enforceability of, of arbitral awards? These are the main topics that we've identified so far uh, from an ISTA perspective. Hopefully some of these may prove to be an inspiration for our debate uh, going forward. And um, without any further ado, I would like to open the debate. The first of our uh, speakers today is Jan Paulsen. Um, no, sorry, it's Jeffrey, I'm afraid, sorry. Jeffrey is the first one who will take the floor, and then Jan will um, discuss Jeff's agreements and then we will go forward um, accordingly. So please welcome together with me Jeffrey Golden as the first speaker today. Well, thank, thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you in particular, Jan. Thank you for um, organizing this event, for the invitation, the opportunity to speak tonight. But a special thanks to you, our audience. Thank you for coming out to the LSE and sharing uh, your evening with us this, this evening. 
Um, can you can you hear me in the back? I asked that question with a measure of trepidation. <laughs> Forty years ago, I was a student uh, attending lectures in this room, and I had a lecturer, a professor here at the LSE, who used to begin his lectures by asking us, "Could we hear him in the back?" He did that until one day one of my classmates shouted from the back, "Yes, I can hear you." but I'm happy to trade places with someone who cannot. And so I've always worried a little bit about what would come back when I, when I asked that, that question. Now, before I begin, uh, let me just quickly sneak in um, a confession, a bit of an apology. Um, I'm very conscious of the fact that I stand here in the shadow of Mr. Arbitration, um, advocate par excellence. Just look at the white hair and all the collective wisdom that it, it represents, uh, white hair, silver tongue, a professional at standing on his feet, thinking quickly, um, and, 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 and advocating. By contrast, I may be the least qualified person in this room looking around it to be talking to you about dispute settlement. Um, I'm a transactional lawyer by training, a sunny side of the agreement lawyer, a, get to yes lawyer. Uh, I remember my first day as a lawyer, having freshly out of law school and arriving as I did uh, at a, the venerable Wall Street practice of Caress, Wayne and Moore, where I began my, my career. I turned up not having a clue what lawyers in a big firm like that did. And yet I was confronted on day one by a stern woman who came out of the HR department, looked me in the eye and said, which department? corporate or litigation? I didn't know what the right answer should be, but I fired back a question. I said, which one's the IBM case? She said, that's litigation. And I said, that's right. I'll take corporate. Uh, and my whole career went from that. Now, there's some of you in the room who may not remember the IBM antitrust litigation. Uh, it began of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It began in um, President uh, Johnson's administration. It was still going in President Reagan's administration. And a number of us joked that there are probably still once young lawyers, now quite old lawyers, in warehouses somewhere in the room pouring over boxes, looking for something that might be interesting, uh, like the uh, soldier that occasionally pops out from the uh, Asia-Pacific uh, theater, not knowing the war is over. Um, that's what we worried about at, at that time. So that's, that's where we start. But I'm, I'm going to give it a go nonetheless. I'm going to give it the old college try. And, and in any event, I've been promised that this wouldn't be a debate of the traditional sense, because there's a project that I want to uh, tell you more about, uh, which uh, it's called Prime Finance. That stands for Panel of Recognized International Market Experts uh, in Finance, a uh, project which is, with the generous support of the Dutch government, probably going to open its doors in a matter of, of, of weeks. Um, and it's something that's captured our imagination rather than it being uh, at odds with a concept of arbitration. Arbitration is its linchpin. It's a prominent jewel in the crown of the prime finance project. Um, but it aims at offering an alternative, a more institutionalized alternative, a complement to be sure, uh, but an alternative to ad hoc arbitration. Uh, and in 
in a sense, uh, a complement but alternative to litigation in the more traditional sense of litigation in, in, in national courts. Uh, and I want to talk to you more about that. So I'm going to resist the temptation to be negative about ad hoc arbitration, the limits that there might be to the role it can play in complex product wholesale financial market disputes. I know that some say that um, arbitration of that sort is too expensive. I know that some say it's too slow. I know that some say it hasn't been able until now to attract relevant cases and that uh, some say that those who arbitrate in that world form a powerful and impenetrable clique, but I'm, I'm not going to get into any of that. Um, I'm going to tackle things on a much more positive note. And I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, but if you're not going to talk about any of that, that's going to be a very short speech. Um, and um, in a sense, uh, the, the case that I really want to put in front of you uh, could make for a very short speech. Uh, Prime Finance, the project I've just mentioned to you, uh, could really be summed up and we would be putting it in front of you uh, by reference to just one thought, one word, and that word is people. Prime Finance is all about people uh, and uh, that's why uh, we think this particular offering uh, is a breakthrough. Um, so you may all get home a little earlier, but, but um, I know you'd feel cheated if I just stopped with that one word and sat down now and gave Professor Paulson uh, his, his shot. So let me, let me do a couple of things before I sit down. Let me, first of all, tell you a story um, which you might otherwise have, have missed. About six months ago, uh, there was a gathering in Seoul, Korea uh, of the central bankers and Ministry of Finance people of the G20 countries. And you read about that one in your newspapers. But the next day, uh, some of them got on airplanes. People from around the world also got on airplanes. And they gathered more quietly in the Peace Palace in The Hague. And unless you read Dutch, you would probably have not been able contemporaneously to uh, follow that, that particular meeting. There were, as a meeting convened and shared by Lord Wolf former Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, and there were 60 people sitting around um, a square round table. Uh, 20 of them were from private practice, 20 lawyers, but from 12 different countries. And collectively, those 20 lawyers represented more than five centuries, 500 lawyer years of experience advising in the derivatives uh, and, and broader financial markets. There were another 20 who came from those markets th themselves, um, CEOs, CLOs. Uh, there were uh, more than a couple former chairs, CEOs of ISDA, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, and there were heads of other relevant trade bodies as well. There were also, um, uh, the regulatory community was also represented. There was the New York Fed, the uh, US SEC, uh, the European Central Bank, the president of the Dutch Central Bank gave the first presentation uh, on, on the morning, um, and academics uh, from leading universities, again, from many different countries, but maybe most excitingly, 
there were judges. There were judges uh, from as far apart as the U.S., the Delaware Supreme Court, to the federal courts of Australia, New Zealand. And people brainstormed uh, about where dispute settlement in these markets ought to go. And they worked incredibly hard on the day, and frankly, um, uh, they've been working very hard ever since. And that's been the driving force for the fi prime finance project. Now, why, why all this attention and why, why all this fuss? Well, there's no question but that the um, uh, financial crisis itself was a big wake-up call. And it's certainly the case that the cases have been coming in fast and furious ever, ever since. Um, but in a sense, there was a reason why this meeting happened when it did. Uh, and let me mention two phenomena that I think partly drive the process. First is the phenomenon of uh, standard documentation. Uh, Peter has mentioned the ISDA contract and, and um, all the attention in, in the groups that have produced it that's been given to the subject of dispute settlement. Uh, we know that there is a lot at stake in the over-the-counter derivatives markets. The BIS last time it measured things uh, saw the number to be nearly $600 trillion of notional amount of trading out, outstanding. And it's thought that more than 90% of that sits on the back of just one contract, one standard set of terms, uh, the ISDA terms. Now, standardization brings with it uh, amazing benefits. Efficiencies of cost, efficiencies of time, um, legal certainty. It gets the world, a polyglot world, speaking the same language. But there is with it a corollary risk. If all that trading is off of the very same terms, and a judge somewhere in the world makes a mistake in interpreting one of the terms, that mistake goes whoosh, like wildfire around the globe. And that's a serious concern. In fact, it, it, it gives rise uh, to a phenomenon of, it, of its own, which is that very often in disputes that we're talking about, the parties outside the dispute, the markets, increasingly even um, pensioners and taxpayers, may have a greater interest in the outcome of the dispute than the parties who are actually litigating it. And the parties who are litigating it may not spot an issue that's important or having spotted it, they may not have the, 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 the money uh, to pursue it as they might wish, or they may have a strategic reason for not developing a particular aspect of it. Now that phenomenon, that interest of parties outside the dispute, um, raises a, a, a bigger issue, a bigger complication uh, that challenges certainly ad hoc arbitration uh, and frankly, uh, the decentralized dispute settlement uh, mechanic that we have. It's no longer just about settling disputes. Going back to that uh, uh, IBM case that I mentioned, after all those years, the parties decided that there was nothing to go on fighting about. The case said the government shouldn't have been brought in the first place, and that was the end of it, even though the judge desperately wanted to write a definitive opinion. The game was over because it takes two parties to have a dispute. Um, we've always recognized, though, in criminal proceedings, a wider, uh, more public interest in, in the outcome of things. I've 
shoot you and you forgive me, um, that's not necessarily going to be the end of it because the state may come in and say, we have an issue with parties selling their disputes using guns. We'll tell you when this case is over. We may have something to say about how it progresses. Uh, will we get with the financial markets, with all that's at stake, with the um, broader market interest to a point where there is um, a need to do more than we're doing at, at present to somehow produce um, a result which takes that wider interest into account. There are a couple of leading um, academics in, in the states who've also argued that we maybe need a different kind of jurisprudence when we look at cases that arise on standard forms like the ISDA contract, that those cases where we've historically worried about what did the parties intend, looking at issues that way is meaningless. What did the parties intend? They intended what some working group in some room far away that they were probably neither in and maybe never represented in intended. That again um, is a different kind of issue. Those uh, uh, academics, uh, thinking in particular of a, an article, a law review article entitled Contract as Statute, make analogies to treaties or statutes and say that our investigation should take into account a wider perspective than the party's intention um, and uh, should look at uh, legislative history type materials in reaching conclusions. How do we ensure that this wider interest is somehow gets into proceedings where it, it may be relevant? That's one phenomenon, standardization. Quickly, the second phenomenon, maybe the more pressing phenomenon, remember, if you remember nothing else, it's the word people, is the phenomenon that we are about to graduate by retirement, a whole generation of people with relevant market experience, the lawyers, the architects who developed a lot of the legal infrastructure, the people who developed not only products, but manage the business at a time when it was less siloed, less specialization, who have a, a very um, uh, rich uh, experience that may be relevant to a lot of these disputes. And they've, they've done well. They're not going to hang around to be expert witnesses. They're going to go off and play golf or fish or whatever uh, attracts at this stage of the game. Is there anything that we can do to, in a sense, um, capture their imagination, hold on to that collective wisdom? for the benefit of any number of disputes for which it might be relevant. Um, the two other things, let me mention them quickly. One is the use, increasing use, of standard contracts, financial products, in the developing markets. I want you to suspend your home notions of a lot of the issues that might otherwise arise here and think out more broadly geographically than that. Um, we're using the contracts that have been developed in a more developed marketplace because we don't have anything else. And that's how we can get the, um, the risk management benefits to those parts of the world uh, sooner. But does it make sense to put two parties from who maybe are not English speaking, who come maybe from a civil code environment but are using a common law contract, to put them on airplanes and ship them off to um, the Southern District of New York? or even to the English courts uh, to litigate their cases and come away with a judgment which may not be enforceable even where it matters most in their home jurisdictions. That has to move on if we're going to um, provide a relevant remedy 
for large parts of the world. And we have any number of new, increasingly systemically relevant players, CCPs. We hear a lot about clearinghouses, central counterparties, uh, the enhanced roles of exchanges. We're building our whole financial scheme of things around those players, and yet I see very little discussion about dispute settlement, even though we know that the legal issues are huge. Uh, the issues of layering um, parties in the scheme of things so that mutuality becomes a more complicated question, particularly the issues as you cross, cross borders. We haven't thought clearly about, we don't have a Supreme Court, a World Court to deal with that, and ad hoc arbitration may get a settlement of a dispute, but it may not get us the uh, settled body of law uh, that we're looking for, and it may find it difficult to bring in the uh, experience that may be relevant in sorting out those issues. Um, this prime finance project that I mentioned will address these kinds of issues in a number of ways. Arbitration, as I said, right there, right in the center of things, mediation, a pool of identifiable uh, expert witnesses, um, a complement to ad hoc arbitration and court proceedings elsewhere in that regard, advisory opinions, a sounding board, case assessment, but equally importantly, training, judicial training uh, for around the world and focused and engaged, uh, a, a library of relevant precedents uh, that is accessible. Those ancillary services are important too. Things more ad hoc tend not to get us there. And prime finance, uh, the, the experiment it represents, will be cheap. It'll be cheaper than the alternatives. It has to be. It's heavily subsidized, and um, it's a not-for-profit model, and the parties approaching it are, par are approaching it in a spirit of pro bono. So, in conclusion, our newspapers are obsessed about a debate from the financial markets about regulation. Now, regulation is a kind of preventive medicine, and it's important that we worry about financial uh, preventive medicine in that regard. It's important that we have that debate. Preventive medicine, as in personal health, is important for our financial health as well. But we know that there will be accidents and there will be victims, and it's perhaps by analogy time to think of our courts as hospitals and to think more creatively about dispute settlement. Ask the question about whether our courts are adequately staffed. Is there not more that we could do to get them there? Special subject matter courts. Why do we have special subject matter courts for family law, for tax, for bankruptcy, for trade, IP, but internationally and in, and in any number of relevant jurisdictions, we don't see the same special subject matter courts for finance. Tra World trade benefits dramatically from the WTO and the tribunal and the specialized um, uh, advocates that appear before it. Um, is finance any less um, complicated, less systemically relevant, less international? Why not finance too? Um, there's a lot at stake. The results to date are not especially satisfactory. There's huge variance that we're seeing even between the two principal jurisdictions that Peter has told us the ISDA contract refers to you. Variation even though they appear to be looking at the same contracts on the same facts uh, and, that's, and that's worrisome. Um, 
The current decentralized way of adjudicating financial markets disputes is letting us down. As I said, it's too slow, too expensive, too unpredictable, and it's failing to produce that authoritative and settled body of law that the markets crave. Um, ad hoc arbitration, while I contend it isn't the answer either. It's just that. It's too ad hoc. A center of excellence, while not the panacea, could move things along. Not just arbitration, mediation, experts, and the possibility of helpful advisory opinions, but a library, an accessible library of relevant material, a collective wisdom emerging as a result, training, judicial training uh, as well. And again, it all comes down to one thing and one thing only. It's not the institution, it's the people. When we have the right people doing it, how do we make sure that we do? So the prime finance represents a possible answer, at least in attracting the right people. Um, I hope that we'll be able to convince you uh, of the need to support that more institutionalized solution that it represents. But um, let's hear from the white hair of experience. Um, what may be wrong with this particular vision? Thank you very much for your attention. And over to you, Professor Pauls. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks very much, Jeff. So you can see already that there are two topics kind of uh, coming to the fore here. There's one, if I look at it from the ISDA perspective, for example, the traditional debate, if you like, between arbitration and, and litigation, and then the additional proposition that is, um, Jeff is making in the form of, of the prime finance project, which has a couple of other facets and shapes as well. But uh, let's see what uh, our second speaker uh, this evening has to say, Jan Paulsen. Thank you very much. May I first thank the audience for being here this evening and uh, Jeffrey and, and Jan, who said, already said some kind things about me, but whether I have a silver tongue, no one's going to find out tonight because at the moment it is lodged beneath a stuffed nose and somewhere above a throat made of sandpaper. Uh, I shall struggle through anyway. I'm helped by the uh, fact that um, the subject is a sexy one because if the idea is international arbitration conquering new markets, how would you like to get your tongue around the word quadrillion? <laughs> you heard a number, 600 trillion. Uh, I read uh, some time ago, uh, must have been that number, approaching $700 trillion worth of assets represented by the instruments known as derivatives as of the autumn of 2008 with a prediction that, nevertheless, September 2008, it might one day approach a quadrillion, a new word for me, but one that's very exciting if we're thinking about international arbitration conquering new markets. Thinking about this subject, a thought came to me that is uh, from an observation often made. When parties lose a case in court, they blame the lawyers. When they lose a case in arbitration, they blame the arbitrators. That is a curiosity. Uh, it's quite a serious thing. Uh, it's certainly something that people in the field ought to reflect on. Why is it so? Uh, but there is a ring of truth in it, uh, I believe. 
and perhaps we can think of some reasons why that is so. Uh, why do you blame the arbitrators? I can think of two things. First of all, the hope of arbitration for each party is that you are able to devise a system in which you actually identify the proper person who is going to decide the dispute, presumably with the thought that you're going to prevail. And so if you don't, unless you're minded to blame yourself, which no one is, uh, the blame should be on the arbitrator. Uh, secondly, I suppose, the lawyers are there talking to their clients and they might have said, well, the arbitrator didn't get it right, which is more difficult to say uh, in the case of courts because they are there. You don't get to select who is going to be hearing your case, possibly. The idea of what I have to say to you, uh, if I'm the person who is defending arbitration, uh, or international arbitration in particular, uh, I, I have to start off with a disclaimer. To defend the interests of the institution known as international arbitration is not to say that it should be promoted everywhere. Uh, because it, if it is thought of as a panacea, and if it is sprung into action every time the system isn't working particularly well, uh, I'm talking about systems of norms and application and enforcement, um, there will be uh, revelations of incapacity and disappointment. And it might not be good for international arbitration to get, uh, to get in everywhere. Many attempts have been made to piggyback on the success of international arbitration and to bring, in it, bring it into areas where, to be blunt, uh, the result has been pratfalls. The ones we know about tend to be relatively successful because they're talked about because they generate a fair amount of activity. The real failures sort of sink with the disappointment but not of, of those who initially promoted it, but perhaps not that much of a trace in the common consciousness. Uh, let's, let me give you just a couple of examples of areas in which there was a motive for turning to international arbitration in a new field and, and, and what happened. Uh, one such thing was the world of international sports. Uh, sort of a brainchild of the then president of the IOC, Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was extremely irritated at the thought that two billion people would observe somebody winning the 100-meter sprint uh, and then having to wait for years while one of the losers uh, contended that something had gone wrong and brought the matter to various national courts. The problem there being, so you see the motive for turning to international arbitration, duration of finding out who actually won when you should know in an instant, or perhaps the world can hold its attention for 24 hours, might even be more exciting to wait 24 more hours and find out if it's validated or not. But beyond that, it's bad for the sports movement. Inconsistent results. Failure on the part of the decision maker to understand the rules of this particular activity, sports, um, doping in particular, which need to be applied in a uniform way. That's called a level playing field. And so uh, the idea of international arbitration of sports was created and it has been uh, a qualified success. If all you're looking at is numbers, the success is unqualified because arbitrations under the rules of uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport 
have mushroom, just a, a phenomenal activity uh, in that particular world of international arbitration. I'd, I'd, I'd venture to say unprecedented. Uh, but it has come that success at a certain price. Uh, those cases are decided very quickly. The hearings, are, it's very unusual for a hearing to go beyond half a day. Um, that does not mean the cases are not complex. Uh, that does not mean that losing parties are disaffected, disappointed, and highly critical in very articulate ways. And that does not mean that when parties complain about the decisions of these arbitral tribunals to the Swiss Supreme Court, the Swiss Supreme Court is not, quite often, very surprised at what happens uh, when decision is made by a tribunal which has had the benefit of half a day uh, of discussion and when the arbitrators named uh, come from a background where perhaps some knowledge of sport is the primary reason for why the arbitrators were chosen. So uh, it has to be considered to be a qualified success. Uh, the area of conflicts between private investors and host states, investment treaty arbitration, the problem there was the unsatisfactory operations of the method of espousal of investors' claim by the investor's home state under the doctrine of diplomatic protection. Very unreliable, as foreign ministries uh, tend to have their own agenda for dealing with other states and don't necessarily feel enthusiastic about espousing with all the vigor you need to litigate a case the claim of its nationals. Hence, that was not a satisfactory um, basis on which investors to look uh, to look uh, for their protection uh, against host state measures. So, in order to promote investment, uh, an inducement in terms of additional legal security was created. International arbitration, in which the investor itself would be able to achieve standing as uh, a claimant in arbitration. So, that was the motive. It has been extremely successful. Uh, that form of arbitration has also mushroomed, something like that in the world of sports. Uh, but in that field, in the field of uh, investment arbitration, uh, the reference to the standards of protection are those of public international law. They are notoriously opened textured, fair and equitable treatment, discrimination, measures tantamount to expropriation, highly fact-specific and highly dependent on what the individual decision-maker might think of those rather woolly phrases. And the result, predictably, has been uh, alleged, debatable inconsistencies in the decision made, and people talking about a crisis of confidence in the system, others extolling it. Uh, it's a qualified success as well. Um, the third and last, uh, before looking at what is being proposed today, uh, we have uh, arbitrations that come out of the world of internet. All the way on top, ICANN, which rules the roost, which decides the allocation of root names, uh, has a system which ultimately, ICANN is a California nonprofit corporation, but under its rules, uh, ultimately there is a system of arbitration uh, which has to decide whether ICANN has properly done its job of allocating root names, that's the name that comes after the ampersand, uh, very prized things in the world of, of, of internet. Uh, and the decision makers there apply international law in addition to Californian law. 
that's sort of at the top level and at the uh, retail level, I might say, just the other evening I heard, and uh, it seems to be true that uh, the system of adjudicating claims of disappointed sellers or purchasers under eBay is also a form of international arbitration, which is hugely effective, it seems, as a matter of self-enforcement, uh, since uh, people who don't respect uh, the outcome of those determinations are simply barred from using that system again, which tends to be dissuasive. Now, the financial world. Arbit international arbitration is not a new proposition for the world of international finance. Uh, it has been considered by international bankers for a long time and roundly rejected. Uh, what is there to arbitrate about? They might say at the negotiating table, I'm lending you money. Either you pay me back or you don't. So I have a problem of a debt to collect. I'm not, what in the world would I arbitrate about? And why should I pay an arbitrator to investigate the circumstances? There are no circumstances. Here's a document, here's an instrument. You have not respected it. I need to be paid right now. I know the rules of banking law in my jurisdiction. The famous droit combier, uh, dear to French bankers, which give me a privileged position. I can go into court, I get a summary judgment, I get a title on which I can execute, and that's what I want. What is there to arbitrate about? Well, the answer is that sometimes there is a reason to arbitrate, even though all you are imagining that you're doing is collecting a debt. And that is, of course, the ultimate magic of arbitration. The ultimate magic of international arbitration is that any two people in this room who might have the idea that they should resolve a dispute that has emerged in, uh, in, their, uh, uh, in their transactions between the two of them uh, would uh, just write on the back of a piece of paper right now that the first person they meet on the street uh, who is of legal age will be their arbitrator and decide their dispute. And if they, uh, they go out and they meet that first person and that person is ill-advised enough to accept the mission of being an arbitrator, hears them out on the street and writes out an award that conceptually is an arbitration award which has greater international value in terms of enforcement than the decision of any Supreme Court of any country in the world given the limited uh, enforceability of court judgments due to the paucity of uh, treaties for the, uh, for the recognition of foreign judgments. Of course, I make an exception for the European space. That gets the intention of the banker who says, well, if I need to be concerned about that, on certain occasions I will be interested in that thing, how to enforce. Now, what is being proposed today uh, in this quadrillion dollar potential market is something which, uh, by uh, reading the press release of the World Legal Forum, under, which, under the auspices of which this was discussed uh, in the Netherlands uh, in October 2010, uh, it was proposed that this system of arbitration uh, is something which would be overseen by the World Legal Forum Foundation in The Hague, and that the proposed venue for the tribunal would be the Peace Palace. Uh, in The Hague, and this is something which would be established in the first half of 2011, which, leaves, which gives us six weeks to wait for this. 
uh, I am reminded of the fact that uh, people do get nervous before the opening of Olympic Games, but you know, somehow when the date comes close, uh, uh, a greater hurry is exhibited and we, we will see what comes out. Um, those of us who are technically interested in, in the workings of arbitration uh, uh, will be curious to know to what extent, uh, how actually this might, is, is this actually what is being proposed? Uh, what is the role of the Hague? What is the role of the Peace Palace? Is the PCA going to, from a court of arbitration, going to be involved in some way? I know that its Secretary General has, uh, in principle, as he should, expressed his interest in, 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 um, in, in being involved in that. If that is so, um, is what is being proposed really free? Total freedom for all parties to agree to any arbitration that they like? And if so, what happens to uh, predictability and the formation of norms in this area? Let me suggest a number of positive um, elements of what might one might imagine could be achieved in this kind of a system. Of course, it is good and interesting to conceive of new ways in which the institution of arbitration can serve the international community. Of course, it is good to do so, always. What is proposed here uh, in terms of the problem, the motivation, is that products, you know the expression, products are invented at a speed at which it is impossible to assess compliance and risk. And for that reason, it is indispensable to secure some form of applying norms, understanding the rules that underlie the relevant uh, instruments, and enforce decisions in a way that leads to uniformity and confidence in enforcement. Well, that, we understand, is a great thing to be achieved but of course, drafting is one thing. Applying, enforcing are primordial. And that is actually the great challenge. Sometimes reading the expressions of the ultimate users of the system, bankers, who don't spend their lives in courtrooms or before arbitral tribunals, seem to not have their minds totally focused on the difference between enacting uniform rules and actually confronting the chaos of international adjudication slash litigation slash arbitration slash settlement and the understandings that come out of such a mosaic uh, of, 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 of procedures. If a system such as the one is, that is being proposed is established, notwithstanding what I've just said, it seems to me that it is possible to imagine that useful precedents will be derived. Even though it's not the common law system of a national state, uh, and even though in principle in arbitration, awards are not binding precedents in any sense. Nevertheless, awards can become powerfully persuasive depending on their quality. The experience, experience shows that this is so in given certain conditions. And those conditions are, I cannot address, I can just say that those conditions seem to be the degree of specificity of the norms that are being applied. So I gave an illustration of open textured norms, those of public international law, fair and equitable treatment, which are not technically specific. So to the extent we're, we're talking about instruments where the refined answer 
is something which turns on usage of words, usage in the particular industry of, of finance. Uh, that is uh, something where I think one might reasonably hope uh, that useful precedents might emerge. I take my other example of sports arbitration. Uh, certainly, there is a good record of dominant precedents, jurisprudence constante, coming out of the Court of Arbitration for Sports with respect to certain things like the distinction between the disqualification of athletes and the suspension. Okay. That's very important. You disqualify an athlete who participated in an event because it was unfair for that athlete to win. It was unfair to somebody who raced in that event. Suspension for the future doesn't necessarily uh, harm the interests of a particular individual who hasn't raced yet. So you see that distinction. That works out in terms of proportionality of sanctions. And there is a rich jurisprudence in that area. It's been very extremely useful to see how the world sporting community reacts to that question. Similarly, with re regard to uh, the, the notion of chain of custody of samples and in doping infractions uh, and the presumption of the scientific accuracy of accredited laboratories uh, as opposed to hired experts who don't come from an accredited laboratory. If so, that holds out some promise. Uh, something in which arbitration in this area would surely benefit the general institution of international arbitration is that it might kick us in the international arbitration world into action in some areas where we haven't done very well at all. I don't understand, I have never understood why it is thought to be inconsistent by some inconsistent with the idea of agreeing to arbitration, that arbitrators would decide cases by way of summary disposition. I don't understand that. That is, a, that is a decision on the merits. That is what arbitrators have been asked to do. And if a party claims and convinces a tribunal that taken, taking everything the claimant says at face value, nevertheless, a case of action has not been stated. I don't understand why it would be impermissible for arbitrators to draw the ultimate conclusion, which is fair in those circumstances to say, to dismiss with prejudice that case. It is said that if you agree to arbitration, um, the first role of the arbitrator is to hear the parties out. Well, if the arbitrator can determine that there is no point in hearing facts which that arbitrator has determined to be legally precluded, I just don't get it. Now, this is one of the great claims bankers have always made. What is there to arbitrate about? And I agree with them. If there is nothing to arbitrate about, let the arbitrator stop the carousel and render an award. And on this, I think all the pressure that can be brought on arbitrators uh, is, uh, is a good thing indeed. Some doubts to conclude. The ISTA master agreement if that is 90% of this glorious quadrillion market, is bound in many cases, to my understanding, to implicate the interests of many more than two parties, even in a given case. Uh, and if that is so, you have a first problem of third parties to the direct original parties to the agreement. You have assinees, successors in interest. You have affiliates. Uh, 
who are who, who may be extremely interested and how are their how are their interests going to be catered to but beyond that even the wider market which is looking for precedents what do they say about a cre precedent created by a case in which the advocacy was terrible and yet there it is uh, we don't want others pleading for us uh, if a great problem in this refined area of litigation litigation under ever more complex derivative instruments uh, if one of the problems is conflict of interests in that the authors of these complex instruments uh, tend to be professionals working in the large law firms in the world who refuse to sue the major banks uh, if that is a problem that's not going to be resolved here the conflict of interest remains the conflict of interest if and then there's the conundrum which I was reflecting on as I was listening to uh, Peter and Jeffrey who, who, who need to figure out if they agree on this one uh, if you want precedence if you want predictability if you want certainty in knowing what the norms mean either you oblige the parties to have reference to experts if it's prime finance or whatever it is that you get some some consistency or you say freedom is more important and this must be left to the glorious chaos of party autonomy which has never particularly pleased regulators that's what i'll say for the moment Thank you, Jan. This was very inspiring. The idea was to, to give each speaker a chance to react to the immediate um, statements that were made. So, Jeff, if you feel like it, uh, to make some comments on what Jan has just been saying, and then after that, um, after giving Jan the chance, we'll open up the floor for questions. Well, thanks again, Peter. Um, I knew it was going to be difficult to, in a sense, draw out uh, more conflict between our respective positions, uh, but it may be that the audience will be able to help us in that regard, and I, I've got a sense that the sooner we get to audience questions, the more fun and maybe more interesting this will become. So I'm going to be very brief. I just want to comment on a, on a couple of things. I want, when I was a student here, a, a long, a century ago, well, certainly last century, um, one of the things that I tried desperately to make an original contribution to knowledge about was the process by which judges were selected for the International Court of Justice uh, and to deal with the question of who made the best judge. And there was a huge debate at the time between the view of the common law countries on the one hand and the civil code countries on the other. The debate was about whether it was easier to teach a judge international law or an international law professor how to judge. Civil code countries seem to have this uh, respect, which I can only these days now admire for academics and, and professors. And they said, let's start there. We'll teach them how to judge. But the common law countries uh, tended to start from a different place. Although when it came to it, trying to get somebody to move to The Hague, they usually had a hard time persuading sitting judges and ended up with more academics than they might have set out to find. Anyway, all I'm saying is on the matter of competence, um, we've got a real issue because the cases have evolved. They've evolved from cases which judges certainly and arbitrators uh, aplenty 
had real comfort with. The derivatives markets may have made the facts more dramatic, but the issues of the old cases were familiar ones. They were issues about whether a contract had been formed by an exchange of um, emails or, 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 or faxes, if so, on what terms, whether the parties had the um, authority to enter into a trade. What about counterparty relationships? Did this party owe a duty of care, a greater duty of care to that party? The, 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 the facts we see changing in some of the post-financial crisis cases, they've gotten into um, a calculation, a valuation of trading uh, a, to, into um, uh, formulaic calculations, fluid asset theory, some very complicated issues which are not easy for people less familiar to take in their stride, not at least without a more formalized injection into the proceedings than we've currently been able to achieve of that real expertise, that real, real competence. Uh, it's interesting that, um, coming back to the more summary proceedings, that bankers' financial markets seem to prefer certainty and a result even over justice, and we have to figure out more cleverly how we can in a sense, establish that, um, that, that certainty. But the question of balancing the interest of the markets on the one hand in a settled body of law, in more useful precedent, in getting uh, learning from our mistakes against the interest of the market participant on the day in protecting proprietary information, protecting what it views as confidential interest information, that's a, uh, a real nut to crack but I don't think we're going to crack it by moving, uh, uh, sort of uh, lurching from ad hoc to ad hoc result. We have to get more of a commitment to focus on that particular interest and the phenomenon, as I described it, um, of, of our, our, our markets. The analogies to sport, um, to uh, uh, investment treaty arbitrations are, I'm glad Jan's raised those, they're important, and we are paying serious attention to all of that. But there again, when it comes to sport, I'd be surprised if there wasn't almost everyone sitting in this room who didn't feel that they somehow were entitled to express a view about whether the goal ball crossed the line and the goal was scored. Uh, and there are um, experts aplenty when it comes to analyzing drug tests and the like. But even there, we see a measure of institutionalization, which I think has great benefits. And again, those are precedents that we're going to want to uh, study more carefully. So uh, I think, um, as I said, in, in, in all of that, we're looking in similar places. All of that says to me, there's just too much at stake. It's a dynamic marketplace. It's characterized by creativity. Shouldn't we be a bit more creative in thinking about what the right answers are to those kind of problems uh, and moving things along from where they start to maybe where they, they ought to go? Thanks. Right. Okay. So um, we open up the debate now. Um, anybody in the audience who would like to ask a question or make a comment? And if I could ask you to identify yourself. Um, there's one gentleman. We have a mic, I believe. The gentleman in the upper ranks. Hello. Um, I'm a general counsel for a bank uh, at UBS, uh, name is Neil Stocks. Um, first thing to Jeffrey is that when we um, in the financial services industry 
knew that ISDA was being developed, well, I personally sighed of a bit of relief because there you could get traders to effectively settle their own disputes. And traders in the uh, banking industry, as you probably know, are fairly irascible sort of people. So that was a very, very good development. Uh, I then listened to Jan, and I, I agree with him that there was a resistance uh, for banks and financial service industry uh, participants to look for certainty. But over the last few years, the number of stakeholders which have reached our industry, not less than regulators, uh, shareholders, passing strangers who think they've got a stake in our business, have actually got, as I think, away from certainty. My view is that arbitration, alternative uh, dispute resolution, is going to become a very, very big industry in the financial services industry. I don't think the Dane court uh, is going to be on our mind as a precedent, if you like. And also that I think we will move towards arbitration. I'd just like to hear the reaction of both Jeffrey and Jan uh, on what I've got to say. And I, uh, I can only offer my personal experience in the industry. Well, 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 thank you for those comments, Neil. You obviously um, um, have the benefit of terrific experience, and so what you have to say is something that we should listen to and pay a lot of attention to. And, and um, I guess if you're right that um, uh, the future of arbitration is bright, then there again I say how important it is that we get the right people uh, to the table if that's the case, that we, we, we overachieve, we continue to attract more than our fair share of the people who could make a contribution to that. And I think it's going to require a measure of cross-fertilization between, as I said, those who know how to arbitrate but maybe know less well the products and those who know the products but need to know better how uh, to settle disputes. And it may be that doing a better job than we've done until now of getting them all into the same room committed to the task will be a good thing. You know, right now when we look at more conventional courtroom litigation, um, I would say uh, that although the regulators have ignored it, uh, the courts are highly important to the future of financial market regulation, that the courts are potentially a huge ally of the regulators. When I was a law student trying and, and a young lawyer trying to figure out how much due diligence do you do in an IPO or um, uh, how much, uh, what were the right steps to follow. You read the black letter law, you paid a measure of attention to the, um, the regulations, but you studied the cases. You studied the cases, you read the case that said, well, here's a young lawyer, call him Young Stanton, he didn't do enough. And you say, I'm not going there. Or you pay, you know, here's a young lawyer, or here's a lawyer who, who did, did enough. And you said, how do I get to that same, same position? Judges who understand finance can play that role. I think we've moved into an area of relevant financial market activity where, and I'm not talking now to an audience here in London about the English courts necessarily or the U.S. courts. This is a very decentralized scheme of things and it's a big world. And if we're going to, um, uh, whether it's 
things move, as you say, in the direction of arbitration or even in more traditional courtroom settings, we've got to do a better job than we have of getting people who are comfortable with, who understand this stuff, deciding the cases. Jan, would you have to comment? One caveat. In my experience as an advocate, uh, I've often had to deal with problems that were way beyond me. Uh, one has a few hundred hours uh, of assignment to a particular part of that problem, so ultimately one learns a bit about that thing, enough to present uh, competently a case which turns on, on a narrow era, area of, of that specialty. Uh, in that position, I think all of us uh, feel humbled about how little we know of the general picture. And so we think this is really something uh, for somebody who's not a specialist in procedure, as we arbitration people are. This really calls for substantive specialty. Now, the, my caveat is that on a number of occasions in my experience, uh, that reflection has led me to seek the appointment to the tribunal of persons who were highly expert in a particular area. Uh, such as the law of public procurement, if that was the dispute, or European law. Uh, you, you can think of a, of a number of things uh, which might be relevant. If one isn't careful, that great expert in that area, it just seems odd to someone who's specialized in procedure, but has no clue of how to make a process eventuate in some cost-efficient way into a result. And that's, that's, that's the great difficulty I see because very often in my experience, uh, the result has been uh, disappointing. Uh, and that, that might simply be in, in, in nature of the particular craft of, of, of how cases need to, need to be processed. So I think what, we're, what we might be thinking about uh, are persons who are extremely knowledgeable in the field and who, are, who have a talent for it and who are willing to face a bit of a learning curve and only then uh, will we see effective arbitration? May I maybe add one observation from the ISDA perspective? When we started looking into arbitration, we, wonder, we were wondering why has the topic not come up earlier? Why has it not been raised in 25 plus years of ISDA practice? And the answer was partly given by the gentleman from UBS just now. At the beginning of this industry, this industry was a sort of a club, let's say, a limited number of dealers that were dealing with each other on a regular basis for whom disputes may have arisen, but in the light of the ongoing and future trading relationship between the two counterparties, they were certain that this would be sorted out somehow because you wanted to keep trading. Over the years, when uh, both the landscape of counterparties as well as the kind of um, caliber of counterparties got more and more diverse, this has changed. So we're now dealing with banks, financial institutions, end users, so-called end users, corporates, utilities, sovereigns, pension funds, insurance companies, where people are more willing and more inclined to, to have a conflict, have a dispute, and battle it out in front of some um, uh, dispute resolution forum. Um, so the question going forward will be um, which, is the, which is the right one? 
um, going forward. And what I took from this debate was quite interesting. It seems to me, Jan, correct me if I'm wrong, but is, is your inclination towards more one sort of centralized dispute resolution facility for all of these types of transactions, or would, would, would you tolerate some sort of uh, kind of, you know, variety of fora where people can take their disputes to? I, just I, one single one. I was just raising the question because I, I, I saw again and again in the public pronouncements uh, of uh, people associated with your venture that the key thing was uh, was certainty in the under in, in in the diffusion of a particular understanding of an instrument when it became contentious. Mm -hmm. And if that is so, then I find it difficult to understand how you would tolerate um, the chaos of party autonomy, as I call it. Okay. Very good. Um, well, we have more questions. Yes, Philip, Roger. Uh, <coughs> Roger McCormick. Uh, uh, it's, I think, impossible to overlook the Lehman's litigation being in London and just after the financial crisis. And that's taught us a number of lessons and is continuing to do so. One of which I think is that uh, the real danger is surely not that judges don't understand the complex documentation, it's that the parties don't. <laughs> you have the rascals case, you have several cases that show the parties simply didn't understand the full impact of what they were signing up to. All of a sudden. But the, the other question that comes out of it, or the issue, not a particularly new one of course, is that in um, <coughs> Insolvency really is the acid test of contract validity in financial markets. And I don't see how, but Jeff, you might be able to explain this, I don't see how the, the prime project deals with the problem where a Ruritanian judge says that um, such and such a clause in the ISDA document just isn't valid in the insolvency of a party incorporated in Ruritania. Would you like to respond to that? Well, yes. I mean, I think the, um, the, 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 there's a, the, the two concerns are, are related because in each case right now, um, the, the rogue party or, or the, um, uh, the local judge is less likely to be um, focused in, 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 in where the right answer may lie, then ideally the markets would like to be the case. We, we have in this country the FMLC, which um, anticipates risk in these markets, and it, where it sees it, it prescribes it. It doesn't take a court uh, case to, to, to get the FMLC proactively to um, uh, give guidance that may be relevant in a court case. Uh, and it also bridges to the judiciary here in, in terms of um, uh, helping wholesale financial markets issues be taken on board by the judiciary here and, and a dialogue in that sense sense going. We don't have that internationally. And so again, these are, these are issues uh, for far. And right now, uh, a judge who might wish to make his or her own mind up about the answer has no useful library that they can dip into. So in a sense, institutionalizing uh, the uh, concern about dispute settlement in the financial markets and the way that the prime finance project targets is as much about what it'll do on day one 
in terms of uh, collecting relevant precedents, uh, making those more, more easily available, training judges, and <coughs> getting opinion papers out in an FMLC sort of way, in a way that's not now happening. That, that's you know one step to solving the problem. We don't expect Ruritania's insolvency cases or its tax cases or cases where public policy looms large to come, <coughs> come flowing in the door. But there's plenty of do, to do in addition to those kinds of cases. I think Roger makes a, a valid point. Um, part of ISTA's mission, actually, um, most of its uh, law reform mission or mission in the area of law reform for the last couple of, well, two decades was to sort out the insolvency situation, make derivatives transactions enforceable upon insolvency. So that's, that's been our main mission over the years, and I, I'm sure that will continue going forward, so that a place like Ruritania has laws in place that make both derivatives transactions enforceable among uh, counterparties as well as uh, netting upon insolvency, etc. So I guess that will go on in, in, in parallel. Um, I personally do not see how an arbitral, uh, arbitration forum can, can kind of overcome this, this barrier that insolvency poses um, to conflict uh, or dispute resolution, but uh, among much more learned, many more learned people here in the room who may be able to enlighten us. Any further questions? I saw Philip earlier uh, raising his hand. Uh, uh, my name is Philip Wood uh, from Allen and Overy and LSE. Uh, I just make uh, one comment. I mean, obviously, arbitration issue is very much at the top of uh, people's agenda now for various reasons. I don't quite, but it is. Um, and I'm often not. So I rule out this uh, 20 point thing, you know, because I won't go through the 20 points, pros and cons. Uh, and everybody is much more confused at the end. But the one, one of the points, I think most of the points I understood, the one I don't really understand is this thing about enforcement. I don't understand it's, it's uh, because that's the sort of the trump card of arbitration, um, that uh, you've got the convention. Um, and I sort of wondered about that, because uh, at the level I do that, you, you never really get to enforcement. You, you know, if anything goes wrong, either you have a workout, uh, or you have, um, uh, you have insolvency proceedings, uh, or you have the, you know, the intermediate prepackaging not quite sure how arbitration, you know, the whole issue of enforcement, you don't go around attaching as it just doesn't happen in the wholesale market, or very rarely. Um, and I think the other point is uh, on, on, the, on, on enforcement. Uh, I did a study recently of the enforceability of court judgments uh, around the world. And these studies, I don't know whether they're correct or not, but they're carried out by the IBA and people like that. They came to the conclusion that really there are only three countries in which you couldn't enforce uh, a foreign, uh, a, a, a money judgment, which is final and inclusive and all that sort of stuff. And those were Thailand, uh, the Netherlands, and not surprisingly, Indonesia, um, because Indonesia is based on Dutch law. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but if that is correct, then the whole enforcement argument seems to be much weaker. Do you think I'm wrong on that? I think the IBA is optimistic. Uh, there are certainly more than three countries in which one would have, in which I would be prepared to wager some money on, on the difficulties of enforcing judgments. But it's also it can also be very difficult to to enforce um, uh, awards on the New York Convention. I, I I would be surprised if one half of the 144 or whatever it is countries that have signed the New York Convention actually do apply it loyally. So that's the first point. Uh, secondly, in discussing how bankers occasionally 
come around to thinking that arbitration is relevant to their instruments. Uh, I was talking about uh, simple situations perhaps in the past when you're really looking at loan agreements. Uh, and what will happen is not that the banker suddenly gets converted to arbitration and says from now on uh, we'll go with arbitration clauses on a loan agreement. Not at all. Uh, what will what will happen and has happened is that uh, the banker will say that in certain situations, not the run of the mill, in certain situations the problems of enforcement are such that I better have, I'm better off with, uh, with uh, an award than with any court judgment in the jurisdiction to which I think it's plausible that we could agree in this agreement. That was true in the 70s. Uh, one saw these cases from time to time. Quite often it was uh, a sovereign borrower or, 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 a, or a public entity. And then it seemed to come back again in the early 90s, just after the, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and I think we can guess what the reasons were for, for that kind of a vogue. But it's, it's, it's never, if, if, if my remarks suggested that some intelligent banker suddenly got the arbitration bug and, and, and decided to adopt it wholesale, of course not. Just one point, because I, I think I tend to agree with you, Philip, that um, we can wave that flag uh, too often and, and, and too high, highly, and, and that that's just one of a number of reasons that I've heard parties art articulate for a reluctance to fly from remote places to the Southern District of New York or, 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 or England. It's just, uh, it's been interesting uh, in the discussions that have uh, occurred, and there have been many in many locations since, since the October gathering in The Hague, that um, in developing markets in particular, um, parties want a, a, an answer, but not necessarily because they're less, wor they're less worried about it being authoritative in that sense as it being authoritative as a matter of coming from people who really understand the subject. And when we've talked about judicial education in some countries of the world, they've seen that as a less satisfactory answer because it's not a question of educating judges in some countries of the world. It's trusting them in no small part. It's a rule of law issue as much as anything else. But what they've had real appetite for is getting people who really understand this stuff to be there in a way that is easier and more accessible and can fly to them rather than they're having fly to it uh, in, a, in a way that they could just see their, their need for those answers ever growing. We're just putting in place those contracts but it's a time bomb waiting to explode if we don't find a suitable mechanism for settling disputes that come out of it. Maybe even more mediation than arbitration. It doesn't have to produce a binding decision so much as access to that level of expertise and competence that seems to be driving the process. If I could add maybe one observation from the ISDA consultation process um, where the impression was that there's certainly more than three uh, um, there's certainly more than 100 jurisdictions where you have problems with the mutual recognition of judgments. That's, a, that's considered a very big problem. So it would be interesting to see, see that particular study or the survey. Um, because the general impression was that even, well, let's say, in the absence of absolute legal certainty by way of one single disparate resolution forum dealing with derivatives uh, transactions, if I can get le at least get an arbitral award for in-house risk management purposes at financial institutions, they feel better or may feel better with an, with an award, 
even if that award might not be enforceable. And we had a number of countries that were mentioned where, who, who are um, part of the New York Convention, states parties to the states party to the New York Convention, um, where enforcement actually doesn't work. Ukraine was was one, if I can name one. Uh, but please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, uh, so people feel better for risk management purposes internally to, to go for an award if there's nothing else out there. Further questions? The gentleman there at the corner. Uh, Tony Conte, you mentioned mediation and there was a mention of the Lehman Brothers uh, cases. The Hong Kong International Arbitration Center has a scheme running which uh, proposes mediation first of all and if that fails the parties can then if they wish go on to arbitration. Uh, apparently so far they've had something in excess of 300 mediations with an 89% success rate um, but evidently none of the failed mediations uh, have gone on to arbitration. And being a member of the arbitration panel, I'm quite upset about that. Um, but I, I wonder whether you see, um, you've discussed uh, arbitration in the context of derivatives. I wonder whether you see the possibility of introducing uh, a mediation process prior to a possible arbitration process. I thought that was the idea. Um, yes, there's, uh, there's, that's one proposal. In certain um, scenarios, you can actually see that. For example, if you're dealing uh, with Chinese counterparties in Chinese assets, so renminbi-related assets, for example, um, you have to do so under Chinese law, under a Chinese language document, which imposes on you, um, so there's no freedom of choice for the parties to contract under the document they wish to. This particular Chinese document tells you to do first mediation and then go to either a designated Chinese court or um, a, um, the CTAC arbit arbitration in China. So there you have a case where mediation is, has become mandatory, if you like. In other areas that um, are kind of, I wouldn't say below the threshold of commercial, proper commercial arbitration, but other derivatives areas, for example, in the area of collateral management, there are uh, efforts underway by industry, uh, and is there in particular, to come up, to, uh, to come up with solutions to um, decide on the valuation of co uh, collateral portfolios, for example. So that's, there are kind of um, protocols in the making that will um, create such a mechanism uh, and, and make it binding for people dealing uh, under ISDA. So that, that, that is happening uh, within the ISDA world. I don't know, um, I don't have any other observations on mediation beyond that. I don't know if our panelists have. Well, again, Peter, it's, it's, it's about people and it's um, how can we attract uh, the best people, the most knowledgeable people to mediation. Prime Finance has great expectations for, for mediation uh, as a uh, not necessarily as first in time, but just as a complement in the menu of, of, of choices in which, in, 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 uh, for which um, attracting uh, that collective wisdom could, could be helpful. The, the market experts who will be participating will be force-fed uh, mediation training and, and arbitration training as, as well. But until now, it's been harder uh, in the universe of mediators uh, to find people who um, experiences they may be about mediation. And as Jan says, there's a process here, and it's easy to underestimate the challenge of the process, but who are as comfortable 
playing the role that they might usefully be able to play if they were more conversant with the products and market practice and the like. We want to bring them, that, that community together and get them talking to each other in a way that just hasn't happened until now. I, I thought that was sort of the benefit of these prime super specialists and they would sit down with the parties and explain to them what they had signed to harken back to Roger's comments, which is, must be correct. Your host indicates that we have time for uh, a few more questions. I think maybe in the back, just for the sake of uh, justice. Do we have a mic in the back, please? Yeah. I have a question about um, systemic risk to, to Jeffrey. Um, I think few people would doubt that the quality of the dispute resolution would go up if you have an institutionalized system of experts um, dealing with those derivatives claims. But one of your starting points was that at the moment, if a judge somewhere in the world or an arbitrator somewhere in the world takes a wrong decision, this would ripple through the system and would create um, a catastrophe. And I wonder whether this is really true because at the moment, since there's no binding force, there's no precedent, probably a lot of the actors in the market would expect other, if the case was not argued properly or if the decision is clearly wrong, they would probably be more confident in expecting a, a different court to take a different decision. And while it's certainly true that um, this institutionalized expert panel will get things right far more often, they will probably make a mistake eventually. And if they make a mistake, then the actors in the market will probably be far less confident that they would reverse things again. And then this could really ripple through the system. So my question really is, is there a certain trade-off between getting things wrong sometimes and having higher transaction costs on the one hand and the clustering and, and the creation of, of systemic risk on the other hand? Well, you're asking good questions. Um, on the, in answering the question, um, uh, if this wrong answer doesn't really bind me as a matter of precedent, stare decisis, or whatever, am I really going to worry about it? I'd say, well, tell that to your credit committee because, I mean, we, I'm basing the concern that I perceive on a lot of practical experience in that um, the markets have held their breath when issues that they thought were relevant suddenly popped out up on the other side of the globe and it was unclear um, what the judges might know or who would be briefing them and what they might know and yet the consequences in the absence of a Supreme Court that can fix a mistake were pretty problematic. There's an awful lot at stake. Uh, and, you know, it's a very anxious uh, world when you're looking out and the only answer to be given by a court or that you can access gives an answer which um, you think is wrong or the markets think around. It takes a brave party on those facts in this world to um, ignore it. So, you know, again, um, as I said, even where we contemplate ambiguities, not so much wrong answers based on standard contracts, but, you know, a world where um, in a rush we've tried to make it better, a lot of regulation is interested, issued, but we need, the facts are always important, and we need that regulation to, to apply to new facts. 
the, the same um, dispute settlement procedures which uh, could be an ally and flesh out uh, a regulation otherwise ambiguous become a source of systemic risk in this modern world of standardized contracts with the amounts at stake, with the way um, uh, the trading market trades, preferring the certainty of a wrong answer to a pursuit of a necessarily right one, if that's going to take a long period of time. These are just the facts that we're working with that uh, push us in the direction that we've been pushed. I don't know if that fully answers the question. Do we have time for one more question? Two more questions. <laughs> Gentlemen over here, please. Russell, uh, I think we should um, regard litigation and arbitration as complementary services and um, allow the parties to choose what they want. If you want a view on the true construction of the ISDA uh, alternative methods of calculating loss in a derivatives transaction, uh, if you go to the two colleagues on my right, uh, the commercial court will rule on the matter, fast-track the appeal to the, House, uh, to the Supreme Court, and you get a, a finite answer. If you want, as a bank, uh, to settle your dispute with your uh, correspondent bank um, quickly and efficiently, you may want arbitration. But whichever route you use, can we agree that what is absolutely critical in this field is the tribunal, if it hasn't got the expertise itself, should have access to the very best expert evidence. Uh, these are highly complex transactions. And uh, certainly in my time at the bar, there was a concern that if you wanted an expert in a particular field, uh, that uh, so many of the people you wanted uh, to help uh, are conflicted out. In the Libyan Asset situation, the issue was, is a euro dollar repairable in London or New York? Hugely important issue, but uh, certainly on the side that I was representing, very difficult to get uh, experts. So can we agree that um, whether it's litigation or arbitration, it's essential that you have first-class expert evidence? Yes, please, please, Jeff, yes. I, I agree with everything you said. I mean, but particularly the... the the, the, the emphasis of what you said, which is the importance of um, having expertise available, keeping it inspired to be available, and 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 uh, and making that all accessible, which is a, again a much harder proposition as we go around the wider world where this is all relevant than it is sitting here in in, in London. While we were having our discussions at the um, uh, in, in the Hague about finance, just down the road we have. Uh, uh, another international tribunal, the International Criminal Court, which is complemented by a kind of rapid response unit that can, on short notice, find the forensic scientist who can look into a, dare I say, a mess, grave, and, and draw right conclusions. But there's almost, a, you don't have to look it up in the Yellow Pages, you know where to go to get that kind of expertise and, and tap into it. That's a more, been a more problematic thing in the uh, disputes that have arisen in these markets certainly around the globe. And we've got to do better than we have done in um, ensuring that that is a resource that knowing judges can, 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 can draw on and making sure for as long as we can, this is just a personal belief, that we don't lose some of the talent that's out there if we can hold on to it a bit longer. 
because we're looking sociologically at a very different game that's being played. It's more siloed, it's more specialized, fewer people necessarily can bring to bear that expertise. And most of the litigants in the big cases would probably tell you, this has certainly been my, my experience, that they have struggled in many instances to find right experts and, 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 and make them available for the benefit of the proceedings. Well, I could so, certainly from an ISDA perspective wholeheartedly support your intervention. So, um, we are of the uh, view that whatever way of dispute resolution you choose, you should have the uh, um, opportunity to, to get access to the experts, uh, most experts, every expert that you uh, can think of. We noticed, however, that many legal systems in their procedural law actually actively prevent courts or judges from using experts. When we talked to various uh, ISDA members across the jurisdictions, we heard time and again that even if the court wanted to invite along a, an expert, because the ISDA matter, and not only because of linguistic reasons, because the ISDA Schalberg matter is so complicated, there was no way of getting an expert into the proceedings. So that's, that, that opens up a much wider field of problems, obviously. But Point taken. One final question. Do we have time for that? <laughs> Great. Uh, <coughs> Hello, Craig Kersey. Um, curious, given the last question, Jeffrey, how's Prime Finance going to go about lassoing um, you know, what talent there is available in the marketplace at the moment, uh, given what seem to be some fairly ambitious targets you've got? Well, they are ambitious targets, but um, and, and as ambitious as some of us are for the project, I've been um, more pleasantly amazed and surprised by the um, uh, the results achieved to date in that regard than challenged by by the task. And it, we we hope at the end of June to announce a initial panel of experts, and it's going to be a, a, a healthy bunch who are excited to be in, in, in involved. And it's been a year process in largest measure trying to screen potential candidates, uh, engage them, and, and uh, get that list. It's going to be, in the first instance, um, probably a bit top-heavy in terms of market and legal market expertise rather than sort of more the, um, the anchors, the judicial uh, or dispute settlement expertise. But that's coming along very well as well, and, and that we, we, we continue to leverage off, hope to leverage off that as, as time goes forward. So June 29th, we hope to announce um, uh, the widest pool of, of expertise in the area uh, that, that I'm aware until now has, has been identified as available. Okay, thank you. All right, we've run over for 15 minutes already. Um, I hope you found uh, today's debate interesting and inspiring. Certainly uh, much to talk about going forward. Uh, from ISDA's perspective, we certainly would like to stay in touch with the LSE about uh, the next steps in ISDA's efforts on arbitration. And I'm sure Jan and Jeff uh, uh, would be um, willing to talk about their particular views going forward as well. So thank you very much for joining uh, today's debate. Thanks very much to the LSE for hosting. And big thank you to our two panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.